0: I grew up in uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, for anyone who knows that area. It's, it's a lot like kind of Downingtown, Westchester area. It's very much a suburban, kind of highly developed uh, college town. Most of the, the city kind of revolves around the university and the hospital there. Um, and so that was where I spent most of my childhood. But for several summers between when I was probably about 13 and 15, me and some of, my, uh, some of my siblings would go out to eastern Washington State outside of Spokane and spend a good part of the summer with my aunt and uncle and cousins who lived out there. To say that this was um, a, kind of a culture shock would be an understatement. You know, I grew up like riding bikes, uh, shooting BB guns. That's not so much a suburban thing anymore, but, but that's what we did growing up. Um, probably shouldn't have had access to the BB guns where I lived. Um, we, you know, we bought our groceries at, at Sam's Club. I had four siblings. We didn't have a lot of money, so we bought in bulk, and we, uh, we ate cheap. Um, my cousins grew up riding horses and four-wheelers. They grew up shooting shotguns, And they grew most of the food that they ate on their own farm. They didn't have a TV. They didn't have air conditioning. They had one bathroom for their family of six, plus me and my four siblings. So things got uncomfortable at times. I think the nearest grocery store was probably like 20 or 30 miles away. But honestly, I don't think in in all of the time that I spent there, we ever went to the grocery store once. But the time that I spent there included some of the most incredible and significant experiences of my childhood. We did a lot of hard work there. They lived on a farm, and so there was feeding animals, there was cleaning stalls, there was weeding the garden and smashing potato bugs. There was all kinds of work that had to be done, milking cows. Every day day—it was, was work. And we had a lot of fun, too, riding horses. That was the first experience I had riding horses. We would go on these incredible horse rides through the mountains there, racing four-wheelers and go-karts. There was a lake about 20 minutes from where they lived called Diamond Lake, and it lived up to its name. You could see, like, 15 feet straight down into this crystal blue and green water, and a friend of theirs had a ski boat. And I remember the experience of like gliding out over the wake of the boat onto this just crystal clear and looking down, down to the bottom of this this lake where you could see the seaweed waving underneath. It was like gliding across glass. But the highlight of every trip was when probably two or three families would load up a caravan of of suburbans and campers and head a few miles north into the foothills of the Rocky Mountains to a place called Sheep Creek. As I remember the story, Sheep Creek was a a secret location that had kind of been passed down through one of the families for at least two generations. I don't know if that was true or not, but that's what they told us. It was only accessible from an old logging road. And I remember like the, the last hour of the trip uh, in the back of a 1980 Suburban felt like a trip through a tumble-dry cycle. <laughs> but when you got there, it was the most serene, pristine mountain oasis you can imagine, nestled against a gently flowing creek that was fed by the melting snow caps of the nearby Rockies. Me and the other boys, there was usually kind of a a pack of about uh, six to eight boys and and the same number of girls. We spent most of our days in the creek, from from breakfast until dinner, we we spent in the creek fishing for native brook trout, uh, sliding down natural rock water slides, building Uh, building kind of dams and forts from fallen trees. Most most days at lunchtime, we would build a small fire on the bank of the river and eat the trout that we had caught that morning, and and then catch another two dozen or so to bring home for dinner that night. Every few days, we would take a hike down into this meadow and, and fill baskets and baskets with wild huckleberries. And bring them back, and they would be gone probably in in a day or two into the mountains of huckleberry pancakes that were made every morning in the makeshift, army-style field kitchen. Everything at Sheep Creek felt more real. The food tasted more real. The air smelled more real. The sunshine The warmth of the sunshine felt more real against the cool dew of the mountain mornings. And every year when we came back home to suburban North Carolina, me and my siblings would gush for like a week straight about everything that we experienced in Washington. I think something similar is happening in this psalm. Many commentators believe that this is later in David's life. He wrote this later in his life. We know from the text itself that it was written by David, and at this point in his life, he's likely experienced some very high highs and some very low lows. He's achieved things beyond his wildest dreams, and he has failed in some devastating and catastrophic ways. And these experiences, all of them, have taken him deeper and deeper and deeper into the heart of who God truly is. He's tasted and seen what is really real, what is really true about God, and it gushes out of him through every verse of this psalm. Spurgeon says of this psalm, As in the lofty Alps, some peaks rise above all others. So, among even the inspired psalms, there are heights of song which overtop the rest. This 103rd Psalm has ever seemed to us to be the Monta Rosa of the divine chain of mountains of praise, glowing with a ruddier light than any of the rest. It is as the apple tree among the trees of the wood, and its golden fruit has a flavor such as no fruit ever bears unless it has been ripened in the full sunshine of mercy." As I said at the beginning, I'll be preaching two messages on this uh, passage, and this morning we're going to focus primarily on verses 1 through 5 in a message I've titled, The Benefits of the Lord. And I want to say from the outset that this message, I'm speaking primarily this morning to those who would say that you've come into a relationship with Christ, that you have trusted in Christ and come into a relationship with God. In two weeks, we'll look at the second part of this passage, and I've titled that message The Benefit Giver. And we're going to step back, I want to step back and, and ask the question, who is this God who gives such incredible Benefits And how do we get the benefits that he offers? And so if you're here this morning still evaluating the claims of Christianity or you're just trying to figure out what you believe about God, I'm really glad that you're here. And I think this message will help you to understand what the Bible teaches about who God is and shows us about who God is. But I hope you'll also come back in two weeks for the second part of that message. My desire and my prayer for these messages is that, like David, our souls would truly taste the sweet fruit of God's steadfast love and mercy, that that we would experience something experientially this morning about who God is and what he has done for us, that we would see the depths of God's heart for us and experience the soul-satisfying grace that he desires to offer to anyone and everyone who would receive it. So let's get started. The psalm is meant to agitate praise. It's meant to provoke worship by extolling the character and works of God. And, this, and David starts by worshiping the name of God. We don't actually talk a lot, as uh, you know, in, in the, kind of the, the context that we're in, we don't talk a lot about the name that God used for himself throughout the Old Testament. It's actually used more than 6,000 times it's a it's a series of four consonants that, that we typically uh, transcribe as Y H W H. Sometimes you might hear it uh, hear it pronounced as Yahweh or Jehovah. This was the personal name that God gave to Himself, and He revealed it to Moses. If you remember, in, in Exodus chapter three, uh, when when Moses, when God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and to tell him to release His people, Moses asks him asks God, "Who should I say sent me? When I go back to all of the people of Israel, like they don't know me." How should I tell them, who should I say sent me to do this incredible work? And God says, my name is, use this name, I am who I am, which is this YHWH sequence. Biblical scholars refer to it as the Tetragrammaton, the four-letter name, or sometimes the, the sacred name. As far back as we know Jews, for fear of blaspheming the name of God, didn't ever pronounce this name in public reading. They would replace it with the Lord, with the word Adonai. And it's why in your Bibles, when you read, you'll see that This is, uh, you see, bless the Lord in all caps, and and many of you know, some of you know, that when you see this all caps, L-O-R-D in all caps, that's referring to this four-letter name of God. What I want to emphasize here is that David is not referring to a generic higher power. This is the God who has revealed himself personally to Moses, to Israel, to David, and to all who come into relationship with him. He's a God who makes covenants and keeps covenants with his people. He's a personal God. He's a God who desires to be known and to be in relationship with his people. But he's also a holy God. David says, bless his holy name. The name itself, I am who I am, it it indicates that God is eternally self-existing. He's eternally self-sufficient. He's eternally self-defining. He doesn't define himself in relation to anyone or anything. Everything else is defined in relation to him. This is the God whose purity and power would obliterate us if he did not make a way for us to come into his presence. See, the holiness of God could actually be the end of the story. It could could be the end. God is infinitely holy. He's infinitely set apart. He dwells in inapproachable light, the the Bible says. That could be the end of the story. The credits roll and that's it. But it's precisely God's holiness that makes the benefits and attributes that follow more incredible. David moves to the benefits of God. And I think it's significant um, that... David is urging himself not to forget God's benefits. See, God is worthy to be praised simply by virtue of who he is, but he's also worthy to be praised because of what he does. Now we're going to look at each of these five benefits that David speaks to in detail, but first I want to just briefly look at what causes us to forget the benefits of God. I mentioned at the beginning of this message that I'm speaking primarily this morning to those who have already put their trust in Christ. And this is important here because the only way that any of us can see and experience the benefits of God is if God opens our eyes to see them. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, The God of this world, speaking of Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. This is the condition that all of us were in, apart from God sovereignly opening our eyes and by the work of his spirit showing us his glorious grace. None of us naturally see God's benefits. So if you know anything of God's benefits this morning, it's because of his unmerited grace and favor towards you. Praise him. But even though our eyes have been opened, our minds have been illuminated to see God's beauty and glory and grace, we are all at risk of forgetting his benefits. And I just want to briefly look at three things that cause us to forget God's benefits. The first is sin. The New Testament describes this, I think, most clearly as walking according to the flesh. And it's contrasted with walking according to the Spirit. Romans 8 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For the, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. When we choose as Christians to go back to living according to our dead flesh... Our spiritual eyes become dim again our spiritual minds become darkened and we forget the benefits that we have available to us in Christ sin is spiritual amnesia and so if you would say this morning as a follower of Jesus you're here you say I'm a follower of Jesus but I'm struggling to, to feel and to experience the benefits of following God. And what I mean is this. Following Jesus doesn't seem very appealing right now. It seems like it would be a lot easier and a lot more fun to just live for the world. One reason for that might be that you are actively living in disobedience to the things you know God has called you to. And so your eyes have become clouded. Your mind has become darkened and you can't see clearly the things that you once experienced, the benefits you once experienced in Christ. Here's the bad news. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, you cannot be satisfied living for the things of this world. The further that you go, the more bitter the world becomes to you. That's the bad news. It's not going to satisfy Here's the good news. God is actually chasing after you with open arms, ready to pour out his mercy and satisfy you again with his grace. That's what Shelby preached last week, right? And all you have to do this morning is turn back towards him in repentance and receive his offer of free grace again. I'm not saying you get saved again. I'm saying your eyes get, the the scales get, get wiped off and you see again clearly the benefits of living in relationship with Jesus. The second thing that clouds our minds, that causes us to forget God's benefits is suffering. And there's a lot that I would like to say here. I'm going to come back to this actually in just a minute, but I believe from the overwhelming evidence of Scripture, from the overwhelming body of testimony of believers throughout history, and from the overwhelming experience of my life, that there is nothing that causes a believer to experience the truest and deepest benefits of God more than suffering. I'll say that again. There is nothing that causes a believer to experience the truest and deepest benefits of God more than suffering. But, in the middle of the storms of suffering, especially the deepest, longest, darkest storms, it's hard sometimes, oftentimes, to see God's smiling face through the clouds of pain and loss and uncertainty. And it is in moments like these that I need, we need, Psalm 103 the most. I need God's word as an anchor to remind my soul of who God is, who he's always been to his people, and who he will always be to me. The last thing I think that causes us to forget God's benefits is success. Deuteronomy 8, verses 12 through 15. This is, as the people are getting ready to go into the promised land, God has a warning for them. He says, When you've eaten and are full... And have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. See, the Bible is really clear about the, the dangers of wealth and prosperity. I don't say the evils of wealth and prosperity, I said, the dangers of wealth and prosperity. This passage continues in verse 17. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hands have gotten me this wealth. And friends, if this is a concern for ancient Israel like nearly 4,000 years ago, it is very much a concern for us in 21st century America. God's command to Israel was the same as in, in Deuteronomy as it is in Psalm 103 as it is now. You shall remember the Lord your God, verse 19, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. In other words, don't forget the benefits of the Lord. So what are the benefits? Take a look at <clears throat> verse three. Benefit number one God forgives all your sin. God forgives all your sin. Now, if we were just like having a conversation one to one, I would ask you, I would be interested to hear how that verse, how that statement, kind of impacts you on a gut level. Maybe you feel like a sense of overwhelming gratitude because you are aware of your sin, you're really aware of how you failed, and you really believe that God forgives all your sin. Maybe you feel a deep sense of shame and guilt because you are very aware of your sin, and you are struggling to believe that God really forgives all of it maybe you don't really feel anything because you don't really feel like you have anything to be forgiven of I haven't really done anything like super bad I haven't really hurt anyone maybe this question comes to mind how can david say a thousand years before jesus was born that god forgives all our sins didn't jesus have to die to take away our sins it's a good question I'm not going to be able to fully unpack it now. We'll take a look at it a little bit more in the next message. But there are a few things that I want us to see from this verse. First, of all the possible benefits that David could have listed here, having our sins forgiven is at the top of the list. It's first. And I think this is significant. It's significant because of what it says about us, and it's significant because of what it says about God. This is significant because it says about us that our greatest need is to have our sins forgiven. Whether we feel it or not, whether we realize it or not, our greatest need is to have our sins forgiven. Any other benefits that we could experience in this life mean nothing if we still carry the weight and the guilt and the consequences of our sin. Sin is like concrete in the engine of a Formula One race car. It doesn't matter how nice the wheels are. It doesn't matter how aerodynamic the body is. It doesn't matter how skilled the driver is. Until you remove the concrete, the car isn't going anywhere. This is also significant because of what it says about God. What this says about God is that his deepest desire, God's heart is to be known and worshipped as the God who saves sinners. We'll unpack this much more in the next message, but I want you to see that God's heart is and has always been to show mercy. And friends, we need to be reminded of that because we easily and often forget it. The second thing I want you to see from this is that God is the only one who has the right to forgive your sin. Here's what I mean. If I, if I borrow $10,000 from Wells Fargo Bank, if I take out a loan and I can't pay it back, I can't go to Citadel Credit Union and ask them to forgive my debt. Right? <laughs> only the one to whom I am indebted has the right to forgive my debt. And so when God's word says that he forgives all your iniquities, the implication here is that all of your sins, every single one of them, the little ones, the big ones, the serious ones, the the sins of omission, they're all first and foremost sins against God. After committing arguably the most destructive sin of his life, stealing the wife of another man and having him murdered David writes in Psalm 51 for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you speaking to God and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight now on the surface that might seem that might seem kind of like callous and insensitive what about Uriah I mean he's dead because of you, David. What about Bathsheba? You took advantage of her. You killed her husband. Then her child dies as a consequence of your sin. The point here is not to minimize the damage that our sin causes to others. In fact, I think this is one of the things that grieves God deeply about our sin. But at its root, all sin, whether it directly affects others, obviously affects others or not, all sin is a rejection of the good design and loving rule of God in our lives. All sin is first and foremost a rejection of the good designs and loving rule of God in our lives. And therefore, God alone can forgive our sin, and God alone does forgive our sin. There's a lot more i'd like to say here but christian if you are struggling this morning with condemnation if you are struggling to believe that god god's heart towards you is to show mercy and that he's ready to to forgive your sin hear god's word for you this morning from psalm 103 i forgive all your iniquities Benefit number two, God heals all your diseases. Yes, that is what the text says. And in many ways, I wish it didn't say that. Because at face value, it doesn't seem to be true. I know that there are friends here today suffering with serious long-term health challenges that are creating enormous amounts of pain and uncertainty in your lives. And you have prayed, we have prayed over and over for healing, and at least for now nothing seems to be changing. When we were in the hospital last year with Aaron, night after night after night, with no answers, no improvement, no idea what the next day would bring. The only thing that I wanted in the world was for God to heal my son. And for a long time, he didn't, and in some cases, he never does. At least in this life, some people some people will interpret this passage to mean or to to be referring to kind of spiritual diseases that God is that God heals our spiritual diseases caused by sin. I, I don't think that's completely wrong because, I mean, spiritual, emotional, mental effects of, of sin in our lives are certainly in the category of all diseases. But I don't think that's primarily what David is referring to here. And I think it actually still carries, it comes with the same challenge that a purely literal reading of, of the text does. Some people interpret this that God really does heal all physical, diseases, and illness if you have enough faith. So if you're not getting healed, that's on you. That's a wrong and dangerous interpretation of this passage. When we come to verses like this that challenge our intellect, we shouldn't, we shouldn't run from that. We shouldn't see that as, a, as something that we need to get away from, or we shouldn't see that as a, as a reason, as a, a proof that God's word isn't true. Oftentimes, these are invitations. Those, these kinds of passages are invitations to, to really press into God's word and to press into his spirit to understand what he wants to communicate and very often passages like this will yield to us the deepest insights about who God is and how he works here's what i think this verse is saying first god does heal physical disease i personally know people who have experienced supernatural healing i undoubtedly there are people in this room who have experienced supernatural healing through prayer god heals disease supernaturally We should pray for that, and we should pray expecting that God will and does heal. That's what the Bible tells us to do. Second, God heals through natural means. He heals through doctors and through medicine and through the incredible miracle of our body's natural immune and recovery and and repair systems. We should praise him for that. But finally, I believe this verse is pointing to a deeper and truer reality. That one day, all the disease, physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, every disease that plagues our broken world and our broken bodies will be gone. And when God chooses not to heal in this life, it's because he loves us enough not to let us put our ultimate hope in something that will ultimately pass away. I said a minute ago that when Aaron was in the hospital last year, all I wanted in the world was for him to be healed. And in, that, in the moment, that was true. I wanted physical healing more than I wanted what God wanted to accomplish through that situation. I wanted the benefits of God more than I wanted God himself. We'll come back to this more in the next message, but friends, if you or a loved one are experiencing a long, aching struggle with disease or physical pain, God has not left you. God has not forgotten you. You have a father who shows compassion to his children. Who knows your frame and he is at work in your suffering to produce glory. We're going to start moving a little bit more quickly through these last three benefits. I'll ask the band to return. Benefit number three God redeems. The ESV translates this in verse 4 as God redeems your life. He redeems your life from the pit. It could also be translated as who redeems your life from destruction. Undoubtedly, David has in mind his own story running from Saul for a number of years, hiding in caves and pits, always on the brink of destruction, never knowing what the next day would bring. Some of you know all too well the pit of destruction that God rescued you from. Remember God's redeeming work and praise him. All of us All of us who have put our trust in Christ have been rescued from a far greater pit and from a far greater suffering than this world has ever known. A pit of eternal and endless suffering. Remember God's redeeming work and praise him. But God doesn't just stop at saving us from destruction. He crowns us with his steadfast love. A crown is meant to be seen like it's a symbol. It's put on your head because that's the highest point of your, on your body. It's meant to communicate something to everyone that you come in contact with about who you are. The imagery here is that God's grace has so marked us, so shaped us, that it shines so much through us, that the banner over our lives, the thing that people can't help but see about us, is God's steadfast love and mercy. Listen to the parallel between this passage and Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, that's when we were in the pit of destruction, made us alive together with Christ. He redeemed us. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So that, why? Why did he do it? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Church, praise him. It's so easy to forget. It's so easy to, to get distracted by the, the pain and the challenges and the difficulties and just the everyday stuff of life. We need to be reminded of God's benefits. Finally, <clears throat> God satisfies Spurgeon says, No man is ever filled to satisfaction but the believer, and only God can satisfy him. Many a worldling is satiated, but not one is satisfied. Friends, whatever images you have of a Christian life that's marked by drudgery, duty, And loss, I would gently and lovingly ask you this morning to repent and see God for who He truly is. There is nothing that God calls us to, nothing that God brings into our lives that is not perfectly calibrated to produce in us true and ultimate satisfaction. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that there is not pain and sacrifice and loss in the Christian life. I'm saying what Jesus says. That there is nothing you can sacrifice in this life that you will not receive back ten or a hundredfold in this life, both in this life and even more in the life to come. There is nothing You can sacrifice in this life. Those are Jesus' words that you will not receive back ten or a hundredfold, both in this life and in the life to come. God's desire for us is to satisfy us with good. I've thought a lot about this imagery of youth being renewed like the eagle Isaiah picks this up again in Isaiah chapter 40. He says, Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, and they shall mount up with wings like eagles. There is undoubtedly, I think, an implication for our lives here and now. There are people that I know who seem to, to have supernatural energy and endurance to face what seem like endless obstacles and opposition in the things that God has called them to. I think especially about people who are working to bring the gospel to unreached people groups in very difficult parts of the world. And I think about people here who are facing really deep and hard and long suffering with joy and with grace. There is a kind of endurance that comes when we have a tangible sense of soul satisfaction in Christ that causes the pain and adversity of this world to not have the same sticking power. I need more of that in my life. But I think also about what this kind of renewal might look like on the other side of eternity. I think about what it will feel like when our frail, tired, broken bodies that we've carried through this world burst into the strength of immortality. I think about what it will feel like for our souls plagued by fears and doubts and guilt to burst into the freedom and joy of seeing our Savior and Redeemer face to face. I imagine it being something like an eagle unfurling its wings for the first time and launching into an endless expanse of ever-increasing joy. Friends, that is the future that awaits all those Who have put their hope in God. Let's remember the benefits of the Lord and praise Him.